Meanwhile, at the DC Nation, we are nice ah! entertainment. <laughs> Here are the world, reasons in the world. None of the Robins ever complain. You're going to melt just like a green sandwich. And show you just how powerful I really am. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airways DC Nation, the podcast dedicated to reviewing all the amazing content DC Comics provides to you as its fans, most notably focusing on the TV shows Gotham, Flash, Arrow, Supergirl, and DC's Legends of Tomorrow. With me as always is my co-host. Hey everyone, Michael here. On this week's episode, Nika and I cover new episodes of Supergirl, The Flash, and Arrow, as well as Gotham, as all these shows are back for their final run of episodes. But before all that, we're going to kick things off this week's News with Nico DC Headline. Wonder Woman director Patty Jenkins reveals her plans for a sequel. Wonder Woman takes place in Themyscira and London, and director Patty Jenkins already has an idea in mind for a sequel. She wants to bring Wonder Woman to America. She says she is excited for her to come to America and become the Wonder Woman we are all familiar with from having grown up around her as an American superhero. She'd like to bring her a little further along into the future and have some fun and an exciting story that is all its own. Wonder Woman 1 is going to be so much about her becoming the person she is, and And Patty Jenkins can't wait to spring forward with who she is and have another great standalone superhero film. If Wonder Woman does as well at the box office as fans are expecting, it may not be long before we get an official announcement about Wonder Woman 2. Full Aquaman cast and logo officially revealed as production begins. On May 2nd, director James Wan shared a set photo to let everyone know that Aquaman production was underway, and on the 3rd, Warner Brothers sent out a press release with more details. You can read the full press release in the ACC feed. The main cast has been officially announced. We also learned that the important people behind the camera who will be helping to bring Aquaman to life. Get all the details in the link in the ACC feed now. Good news to hear that principal photography has begun in Queensland, Australia. A new Wonder Woman trailer premiered on Gotham this week. As advertised, brand new Wonder Woman footage just premiered during this week's episode of Gotham. In the short one minute trailer, we get to see snippets of new footage played to some new music. Check it out in the video in the ACC feed now. Wonder Woman hits theaters on June 2nd. Aquaman director James Wan shares set photo as filming officially begins. As I mentioned before, we heard that Aquaman would be filming in Australia in May, and they've wasted little time. Filming has officially begun. Aquaman director James Wan announced the news on Twitter on May 2nd with a photo of the clapper with Day One written on it. We get to see the Aquaman logo and its working title Ahab as well. Quote, months of intense prep has led to this. Here we go. Wan wrote. In the background, we, we can see they're shooting on what appears to be a submarine or at least a ship of some sort. Aquaman is expected to shoot in Australia for the next Next six months and it will hit theaters on December 21st, 2018. I'm actually way more excited about this than I was initially when they mentioned they were doing Aquaman, but everything we've seen of Aquaman thus far has me excited. And that's the news with Nico, DC headlines for this week. All right, Steve joined me this week to talk about Gotham and we talked about the Gotham Heroes Rise episode entitled These Delicate and Dark Obsessions.
Jim and Frank try to discover what the new weapon is that the Court of Owls plan to use on Gotham. Meanwhile, Oswald reluctantly accepts Ivy's help, and Bruce discovers what has been holding him back. Frank, after this week's episode of Gotham, delivers what might be the strongest of the season, as Ben McKenzie steps in behind the camera to direct his first episode of Gotham. The week was broken down into three main parts. Penguin plotting his revenge with Ivy, Bruce being trapped in Gordon, dealing with his uncle in the Court of Owls. You can see the shape of Gotham and what I call season 3B in the delicate and dark obsession. But it's definitely not enough to know that all these storylines might end up someplace pretty awesome. This is obviously a filler of an episode. They're just kind of predictable with the audience one step ahead of the game every step of the way. So let's go ahead and break down three major storylines of the night. The most successful part of tonight's episode, I thought, was the Penguin and Ivy stuff. Picking up where last week's mid-season premiere ended, Ivy continued to try to nurse Penguin back to health. Oswald eventually handles it for as long as he can, which isn't that very long, uh, but before losing patience with Ivy. Ivy's adolescence company, content othering, he literally laughed at her face when she says that they were friends. Angered, Ivy stomps off and leaves Penguin with his former goon Gabe. Do you think Oswald was internally grateful for what Ivy did for him, or was he just fed up and not really care at all? And was he just using Ivy to get healthy to eventually use her to his advantage? You know, really, I think that Penguin is such a narcissist that he didn't even stop to think of anything that Ivy had done for him, saving him and then nursing him back to health. He didn't even think about that. He was only concerned with his plans, his needs for revenge, and never even stopped to think that she saved his life. And without her, he would have probably died of his wounds. Her adolescent maturity and yet mothering nature with him was at odds, and I think made Penguin slightly uncomfortable and unsure how to deal with her. She was too young and naive in appearance for him to take her seriously, and yet I am surprised he was not drawn to her desperate need for companionship and friendship because he likes people people who make him the center of attention. He's a narcissist, so he likes that. The Penguin needs friends and allies, and it was a mistake to discount Ivy, something he later learned and rectified in the episode. Luckily for Oswald, Ivy is the forgiving sort. When Gabe turns on Penguin, Ivy agreed to help him, showing Oswald just how much he underestimated the crazy plant lady's ability. She is even a pretty good strategist. Not only does she sense that Gabe can't be trusted, but she suggests Penguin refocus is recruiting efforts on the freaks who is from Indian Hill. For someone who despises the word freak, is Oswald finally ready to embrace his inner freak? We probably know who a few of the freaks are, but who else would you like to see in Penguin's army go? Yeah, well the obvious answer would be anyone we saw from Indian Hill, but another thought I had was, what about all those budding psychopaths from Jerome's gang? Could we see some of them answer the Penguin's call? Probably not for most of them, since they are too obsessed with Jerome and the future Joker, but maybe I could see a few would follow Penguin. The other dreaded thought is that somehow Fish Mooney would return now that Penguin needs help and she would either do it because she owes him her life for not killing her again when he had the chance, or she could strike while the city's crime families are in turmoil and fighting for a new leader and attempt to take over the city for herself again. I don't ever want to see Fish's character again, so I'd be fine with not that not happening, but I do think unfortunately it's a very distinct possibility and to be honest I enjoyed Penguin and Ivy team up this week but I'm not sure I care about the Penguin versus Barbara story arc that I think is going to happen or the freaks 
army arc either. I'm interested in seeing the Riddler versus Penguin stuff for sure, and the Court of Owls and Bruce and training. All of that stuff is things I'm interested in, but the other stuff is just fluff or annoyance to me, so I'm not really all that drawn into this story, at least not yet. Well, we all know that Oswald wants his revenge, and Ivy's sort of helping it for her own way. While she is, while the aging and sexing up Ivy's character has been beyond creepy, Maggie Gaya steps up in this episode and puts her spin on the character. She stands out from the crowd, which is impressive considering that Robin Lord Taylor has been the most solid character of the entire season. Her vamping it up and at the same time acting somewhat childish worked perfectly in for this version of Ivy. Makes me wish that we just got a Batman show and Gaya had been involved in it the very start. She hasn't got much screen time this season, but this episode proves that she's been under years. This is a storyline I can get behind, and one that is fun to watch on the very beginning. Maybe it's the odd couple dynamic between Oswald and Ivy. Maybe it's the fact that every storyline Penguin touches turns to gold, usually. Whatever the reason, this was the best part of a delicate and dark obsession for me. Yeah, you know, Steve, I'm just gonna slightly disagree with you there. I, I thought the Bruce stuff, starting his training stuff that we're gonna discuss next, that was the better story arc for me, rather than the Ivy and Penguin stuff. For sure, it wasn't bad, but the next arc was better, in my opinion, and I think was more fun to see but that's because I'm a huge Batman by himself fan or a Batman fan so that's what really spoke me but I can definitely see why you like the Ivy and Penguin stuff and, and why it is setting up for some of the best stuff to come. Well the middle of the road storyline in tonight's episode came with Bruce's introduction to the shaman I call him. You gotta love Bruce Wayne who is so used to getting kidnapped at this point that he runs through his kidnapping question list upon waking up in some random temple. As you might expect the shaman is not super forthcoming about what his plans are, though he actually does give Bruce some answers. Sometimes you just need to ask your kidnapper, what's up in a clear manner? Bruce finds out that Doppelbert is pretending to be him back in Gotham. Do you think Bruce has way too much faith in Alfred figuring it all out? You know, I'm going to say no. I think Alfred will figure things out, and I think even the shaman or monk realizes that too. But he said in this episode that it'll be too late anyway, and their plans will have been successful by then. Luckily, I think that Bruce has more faith in Alfred, and thus we should too, that he'll realize something is amiss faster than expected, and will be able to help stop the court before they can achieve their goals. In fact, we know from Scott Snyder's Batman run in The New 52 that Bruce had a run in with the Court of Owls when he was a child, which is what I'm assuming they're referencing now on Gotham, and almost exposed and took them down. So we can assume that he will be involved if they follow the New 52 story arc. That's, uh, we will, we can assume that Bruce and Alfred will be involved in stopping Court of Owls. Anyway, I do, I, I, I think Alfred will figure it out and be part of what brings down the court's plans, but I think Bruce will use his training with the shaman to learn more about the court, try to figure out who the members are and everything like that, but ultimately won't be successful in figuring it all out because they still plague him as Batman later in life, and you don't want to step on those stories just to make it better here on Gotham. You have to fit within the context of what time in Batman's life it is. Well, he also explains to Bruce that he is there to make him ready to be Gotham protector. What does he mean exactly? It involves making Bruce the worst night of his life in, in fighting Matrix Doctor Strange style and his ultimate reality. 
I guess the rationale remains to be seen. Could the League of Shadows be behind all of this, as I believe? And uh, could we be seeing the imminent appearance of Ra's al Ghul? Well, we actually know for sure that the League of Shadows, or League of Assassins, depending on which name they use in this continuity, is coming to the Gotham show. And we will see Ra's al Ghul, because we saw that in an article in the News with Nico DC headlines a few months ago. We'll learn that Ra's and the League of Shadows will be involved, because Ra's is going to be the head of the Court of Owls in my opinion. I believe that as Bruce pulls the veil off the Court of Owls, or rather attempts to find out who all are involved, I think he'll find Ra's al Ghul as the mysterious and powerful man pulling the strings behind the court. He won't be able to expose everyone, but that is one thing I think he will be able to. With his past shrouded in mystery, Ra's will use his cunning and masterful deception to lay waste to all those who get in his way, and ultimately will not be defeated in Gotham, because it's way too early in the Batman story for that to happen. But actually, in the tagline for the announcement that Roz was coming to Gotham, it said, quote, As the leader of an international criminal organization known as the League of Shadows, Roz al Ghul will prove himself to be Bruce's most dangerous adversary yet. So if he's more dangerous than the Talon shown in this episode and the Court of Owls itself, then Roz and the League have to be behind Court of Owls. This also plays into Nolan's Batman Begins story, and I think Bruce's training in a mountain retreat is too similar to Nanda Parabat to not be connected. So yeah, I definitely think we're going to see Ra's al Ghul and the League of Shadows coming. The organization may actually intend to recruit Bruce to her cause, the uh, Core Owls, as they have in previous versions of the Batman mythos. Yep. Though Bruce has not traditionally started his training, this young before Gotham could introduce the League of Shadows now only to have Bruce reject joining their ranks now and reach out to them closer to the end of the series. At this point, it's unclear how the Shaman is related to the Court of Owls. Uh, what does the Court of Owls exactly want with Bruce? And is Gotham trying to speed this origin story up? Is it too soon, or do you think the series is in serious trouble? cancellation. Yeah, Steve, let's be honest about cancellation. This series is in dire straits, and I believe will not get renewed. The beginning of the season, and really since the first season, this series has been on a steady decline in quality, although recent episodes have definitely given me hope on that front, and a decline in ratings, which continue to get worse, and the three-month stupid hiatus that we just got back from did nothing to help its chances of retaining viewers. (laughs) No. No, it did not. I believe as a result of that pressure and the chance of cancellation, this series is rushing towards Bruce becoming Batman, or at least getting to the point where he can start his true training to become Batman by the end of this season. This series originally claimed to be Batman without Batman, but almost immediately scrapped that idea and threw Bruce into a giant conspiracy that possibly involved his parents' murder and linking to the Court of Owls. And don't get me wrong, because I have felt that that has been some of the strongest story in the entire series. The whole idea was to show the proto version of many of the Batman rogues and tell origin stories for some of the major Batman villains, which has only really worked with Riddler and Penguin, in my opinion. And the series was supposed to be told as a buddy cop show with Gordon and Bullock at the heart of the series. At some point in the first season, the writers and showrunners lost their damn minds and decided that they wanted to change things up and went from the show that they had sold us onto what we've got as far. Jim Gordon versus all of Batman's rogues. This series has to be considered on Earth 1000 or something because it is so 
so far outside the accepted or normal continuity of Batman that it has become almost more than a multiverse version of Gotham, but a version of Gotham where Gordon becomes the proto-Batman and Bruce is an angsty teen. So, to get back to your question, Steve, I don't know what the Court of Owl wants with Bruce besides keeping him out of the way so that they can remake Gotham in their image without him getting in the way. I don't actually think the Court wants anything with Bruce beyond delivering him to Ra's al Ghul, who probably requested they snatch him so he could evaluate him and attempt to recruit him to their cause, much like you suggested that the Court of Owls might try to do. In doing so, I believe this shaman is merely Bruce's first master in his quest to becoming the Batman, but in Ra's al Ghul's mind, he could be a valuable ally and wants to see what Bruce is made of, and that is why he is training him to be the defender of Gotham, as the shaman said. That's my thoughts. Well, the least successful storyline of the night goes to Gotham's continuing injury with the Court of Owls. I've had thoughts recently, however, it probably had no chance of coming into being, but I think the Court of Owls might have one of Malcolm Merlin's earthquake machines on their hand. What do you think, Nico? Yeah, I think that would be an interesting way to connect it to Arrow if these shows were in, sa- in the same continuity and universe or Earth, but they aren't, so I'm not sure that it makes sense. I, th- I still think they could do it, and it would be a good way to level the city and allow for rebuilding, but I do agree that this whole Jim and Court story arc not really captured my interest. Like most of Gordon's storylines, it's unclear why the Court of Owl think Gordon is so special or why they're so obsessed with Gordon family in general. Probably because Jim Gordon is the show's protagonist, but that's not a very good in-universe reason, especially in a city where it's not that difficult to get officials or cops in your pocket. Family drama worked a little bit better this week, but not all that much. We've only just met Frank, and he already seemed like a terrible guy, and his suicide was broadcast so heavily from the get-go of the character's tenure on Gotham that it's not easy. That's not to say it wasn't effective. Watching Jim seeing what could be his last living family member shoot himself, especially when Jim really needs a support system more than a membership in a super-secret, super-sketchy organization. Sure, the Court of Owls have cold masks and feathers, but they don't seem like the types who will send flowers for a Frank's funeral. Or if they do, they will come with a cryptic note inviting Jim to some secret masquerade or something. Jim already has enough of that garbage in his life. What he could really use for is a friend, in my opinion. Yeah, let me jump in there real quick, Steve, to agree with you that I was not really on board with the whole Uncle Frank return story arc from the very beginning, and it makes even less sense when you think about the fact that he was telling Jim one thing to get him interested in the court, but also reporting back to Catherine, and everything seemingly went according to plan until he committed suicide in front of Gordon to get him to join the court. So my only thought here is that Frank killed himself knowing that the court has perfected the resurrection capabilities of the Talon using Hugo Strange's Indian Hill techniques and he killed himself only because he knew the court would resurrect him or that Roz himself would use his Lazarus pit to do the same. Otherwise, was he really trying to get Jim to take down the court or be a pawn of the court? I I couldn't decide which side he was playing and which was the one he was actually loyal to and working towards those goals. So yeah, this has been really confusing and just not a very great story arc. Yeah, there was some oddness to this episode, but that's mostly due to the writing, in my opinion. That'd be when the Court of Owls announced that they're going to purge Gotham. We get a sense of why, and we've seen this before in the plot of Batman Begins, but the concept of purging Gotham isn't the only thing taken from Batman Begins. Bruce is captured at some temple where he's forced to deal with the shaman. We're not explained a hell of a lot here, but the 
whole setup which Batman begins meets Doctor Strange, complete with trippy scenes and imagery. Sequences are good, but it doesn't make sense to send Bruce someplace where he'd be trained. Why not just kill him if you're going to replace him anyway? Kinda idiotic and it's probably the biggest plot hole. The scenes are decent and we get some movement in Bruce becoming Batman, which feels like it's been accelerating as a plot point. Um, the bright light in tonight's episode was a direction by Gotham's very own Ben McKenzie. When actors step behind the camera, not always a great fit. McKenzie proved himself more than enough to the challenge. And the show that is consistently beautiful this episode that has some some tough visual movements. McKenzie offered some standout visual. He embedded the graveyard scene with unethereal beauty and makes Bruce's fantastic dashes through a labyrinth of the temple just as head-spinning for the viewer. I'm not the biggest Jim Gordon fan. That's never been Ben McKenzie's fault. And this episode prove that he is a man of many talents. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I thought Ben did a fine job directing this episode. There were definite highlights this week. For me, the Bruce stuff, and for you, the Penguin and Ivy stuff. And I think a lot of the clunky and worthless stuff was not Ben's fault at all, but rather poor writing and story from the showrunners, and not something the director had any control over. The visuals were great, as you mentioned, and the acting was excellent, but that's never really been an issue on this series. They always get great performances from their actors. I don't want it to sound too much like like I don't like this series, but I will say that it has lost a lot of my interest week to week. I'm hoping with the introduction of the Razo Ghoul character, one of my favorite Batman supervillains, other than the Joker, that my interest will be recaptured before the season improbable series finale. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I totally feel the same. I've lost a lot of interest in it lately. Hopefully we'll get better, like you said. Yeah, I think they've definitely set up some really good stuff for this final push of I think like five episodes left. So yeah. I think there's some really good stuff of available and some really think good stories set up whether they execute that whether they know that they're canceled or whether they know that they're renewed will probably have made a little bit of a decision on how they wrap this up and and hopefully it's not the case where they had to shoot two different endings one based on if it's a series finale and one based on its uh, season finale yeah i hope not all right well that's uh gotham for this week thanks steve for joining me once again glad that you are back and on the podcast again because we missed you on our long three-month hiatus without any Gotham. I know, right? (laughs) And now we're going to jump into our Supergirl discussion as Michael comes back to the podcast and we talk about a Supergirl episode that we sort of had a little bit of a different take on this week. I sort of had some issues. Michael seemed to like it a little bit more and we're going to discuss those issues and I think Michael's going to change my mind and make me see this was a better episode than I initially thought. But we're going to talk about the Supergirl episode entitled Alex. Supergirl and Maggie work together to save kidnapped Alex. Meanwhile, Rhea approaches Lena with an offer. After such a good episode last week when we were praising the change in the Monel character, that made this episode so much harder for me to watch. What is this angry and out of control Kara and Supergirl? Where did she come from? How about the inconsistencies of the Kara character this week? Slamming her fist as Kara at the prison, flying off the handle as Supergirl, and then being uber calm and collected when Maggie finally snaps and goes rogue. 
Michael, was I just in a bad mood watching this episode or was this episode more of the same from earlier this season and not the better stuff we've gotten the last few episodes? Yeah, you know, Nico, I actually like this episode a lot overall, but I also don't disagree with the moody and continually upset Kara that, you know, that that plotline has gotten super old because it definitely has. I don't want to harp on this, hun, because like I said, I did like this episode a lot, but it was hard to watch her go back to this moral high ground and then fly off the handle once again, as you had mentioned. So I don't know if it was just you in a bad mood or if it was just her in a bad mood, but either way, I don't think it took too much enjoyment away from the episode. Yeah, there were definitely things I enjoyed about this episode for sure, but the inconsistent mood of Supergirl really took me out of the episode at times, and I think that's what kind of got me into that, let's say, bad mood. But one of the aspects that I really did enjoy about this week's episode was the confrontation that was almost inevitably coming, and something we sort of discussed a few months ago, the kind of idea and the confrontation between Maggie and Supergirl. Sometimes we, as viewers, sort of lose sight of how law and order in National City works. As Supergirl flies through the concrete canyons and swoops down to punch giant purple monsters in the eye, she also battles all the street-level criminals as well, and that inevitably is going to cause a clash between her and Maggie as the representative of the human powerless crime fighters, also known as the police. And that's not really something that is front and center in our minds as we watch from week to week, at least not for me. So we just take for granted that the police in National City must be so happy that they have Supergirl to help. But then Maggie turns it around. After Kara saves the day by smashing her way into a hostage situation and concussing people along the way, our high-ranking detective, who I guess is also in charge of negotiations because that's realistic, but she spells out how punching her way through life has consequences. Also, as a forensic scientist myself, I love the idea of a Supergirl defense where criminals get their cases thrown out of court because all of their evidence is tainted by an influx of debris that Kara leaves in her wake because she doesn't know how to use a door. Michael, while I was not impressed this week with the emotional mess that was Kara and Supergirl, and even Maggie at times, I was impressed by a small bit of important world building and a convincing argument that isn't exactly pro-Supergirl. And I was even more impressed when Kara didn't cave immediately with apologies. Essentially, there are two ways a Kryptonian seems to be able to behave in a world on the rare occasion that they are actually called out. One is to immediately concede the point because humility is the right thing to do. The second and more interesting way is the self-righteousness. Michael, what did you think of this central theme of this week's episode about the police not exactly being thrilled with Supergirl always swooping in to save the day and screwing up their cases, and Supergirl not being apologetic about getting the job done and saving lives? Who did you initially agree with, and did that stay the same throughout the episode to the resolution in the end? Yeah, you know, I I actually love this idea as well, and it's not something that's entirely new to the superhero genre. I mean, we saw something similar on Smallville. We've always seen it with the X-Men, Batman vs. Superman, and we've most recently seen it with the MCU movies like Civil War. And I always think concepts like these are extremely interesting to explore, but most especially with Superman and Supergirl because they're so morally good that it's hard to see them in anything but that, causing us to actually have to look on the other side of the argument. I think seeing Maggie's point of view this week was incredibly interesting because it wasn't something that I had ever thought about with Supergirl, especially because the EO is technically on her side, so you kind of just assume law enforcement altogether is on her side as well. You said it before when you said that the most interesting road 
road that Kryptonians can go down when confronted like this is the road of self-righteousness, and I would agree with you. I mean, how many times did we see this happen with Clark on Smallville when other characters like Lex, Lana, Chloe, etc. may have actually been right? I hope that this is something that continues well into next season with the show, because I think the concept of the Supergirl defense is something that could easily end up being an extremely interesting plotline, and especially if more criminals like the one in this week's episode show up and are maybe even a little bit crazier, making it hard for National City Police Department and Supergirl to work together. Yeah, that is an interesting idea. I don't remember exactly who told me this theory, but someone I was discussing Batman with once said that maybe the reason that people in Gotham continue to get worse and worse as they go up against Batman is not a failure of the system to keep them locked up, but the continued head injuries sustained from Batman beating the hell out of them and concussing them and ultimately causing permanent brain changes in the rogues gallery. It's an interesting thought that, and something that would equally apply to Supergirl and what Maggie said about broken arms and concussions this week. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even that even goes back to bringing back to your Batman point just a quick second to the Joker's accusation to Batman that Batman essentially created him. I mean, there's multiple different versions of this story and multiple different versions of the Joker and Batman relationship dynamic. But in most of them, Joker ends up saying that it's Batman's fault that he exists in the first place. And I think it'd be interesting if Supergirl went that route a little bit and maybe even try creating a character like that. I think the closest they've gotten is probably Livewire at this point. But I think that could be an interesting concept down the road. Absolutely. But getting back to this episode's discussion, I saw quite a bit of praise for this episode. I will admit that I had quite a bit of it myself for the plot point we just discussed. But much of the praise for this week's episode online was because Carl wasn't exactly an absolute paragon of morality and responsibility for possibly the first time in this series history. And also because this episode seemed to focus on, or at least hint at, the desperation of humanity and strong emotional bonds that exist within this world that they've created on Supergirl. I will say that this was the first episode in a long time, or as long as I can remember, that really dug down into the Kara and Alex relationship again. I didn't really like the effect it had on Kara or Supergirl with the wild mood swings, but I did enjoy the focus on their sisterly relationship again, something that Dan and I really stressed was a key importance to season one. If you parallel that with Alex and Maggie's relationship, I can see why it spoke to so many viewers this week. This episode definitely touted the girl power aspect of Supergirl. I have on a number of occasions this season complained that the Monel plotline has led to a not insignificant amount of Kara erasure and pulled focus from the sisters and what I consider important to the series, mainly Kara and Supergirl. Our strong female protagonist had taken a back seat while she dealt with her loneliness and eventually fell for the Daxamite. But the female contingent this week was very strong. Kara, Maggie, and Alex were at times exceptional throughout the episode. Kara, when she wasn't hulking out, had dimensions, Maggie was vulnerable, and Alex was a straight-up badass. But that was not all. It also extended beyond the good guys to Lena and Rhea having some tense, multi-layered conversations about surviving a mother and being a mother who also was drawing the unwitting Luther back to the dark side. It was some really powerful stuff across the board. So Michael, despite my early criticism of this episode and the inconsistent Kara emotions, are you seeing some of these great things I did in the episode or do you think I'm grasping at straws to try and make this episode into something it was not? I have a feeling you're 
going to say that I'm not grasping at straws. No, you're definitely not. And as I said before, I really enjoyed this week's episode. And honestly, I think it had a lot going for it. Granted, I was more excited about the plot of this week's episode as opposed to the character's emotional responses. But I thought for the most part, that is, that those were handled very well also. with Again, with the exception of what we've talked about with Kara at times being a little old top. But other times she would great. You know, as you know, Nico, I love to compare this show to Smallville. And for whatever reason, this episode felt extremely small. And maybe that's because of how Kara responded to Alex's kidnapping. Maybe it was Maggie's issue with Supergirl, which came around full circle again. Maybe it was the nice guy turned supervillain that reminded me a lot of Smallville's meteor freaks. But for whatever reason, it felt very Smallville-ish. And I thought that worked great. Actually, I think that's probably why I like the episode so much. Yeah, now that you mention it, it really did have a very Smallville-ish feel. Besides the emotional inconsistency stuff we already discussed. And maybe if I could just get out of my own way and let the little things like that go, I'd have enjoyed this episode more while actually watching the episode instead of when we're thinking back on it and discussing it now, which makes me think I actually did really enjoy this episode. But I I don't know. Anyway, no Guardian this week in this episode. I think if they had gone a different route with the whole Supergirl versus the police story, I would have liked to see Guardian be a part of that discussion where he was accepted more by the police because he was less destructive in his takedowns of the bad guys, was more forensically minded or something like that, whatever route they wanted to go, where it kind of made Guardian sort of the middle ground between the two, and they were a little more willing to work with him because he seemed to be more willing to work with them instead of just taking over from the cops. Michael, do you think it would have worked if they had gone that route with Guardian as a middle ground between Supergirl and the police? Were you disappointed again that we did not get Guardian in this episode very much this week? And do you think now that Maggie and Kara have had this confrontations of sorts that maybe Kara will focus more on alien threats and monsters and leave more of the street level crime to the police and possibly Guardian? Yeah, we had talked about that before and I I think that is a really good idea and I love your idea that Guardian is kind of the middle ground or could be the middle ground and I think that's something that the show should definitely try and explore and I think that could have been very interesting but honestly you know, in this episode there's no real room for Guardian. You know, Wynn was way too busy trying to find Alex and while last week we got less DEO and more Guardian this week we got less or no Guardian at all and all DEO and I think in some level I'm not sure if it's possible for the writers of the show to even tell a good DEO and Guardian story at the same time. Um, Usually one has to be sacrificed for the other so I'm glad that this is that Guardian is going to be safe for next week or whenever he ends up coming back so I don't know I I just didn't see an area in this episode where that could have played a part. I I think that's definitely something that could happen in the future though. Okay yeah I actually think you're right about the not being able to tell a good story except for that next week I think Supergirl looks to go up against an alien threat and Guardian's going to assist in that but actually find a human problem mixed into the the story and need to resolve that while Supergirl takes on the alien threat much like we discussed would be the way that we wanted to see the Guardian and Supergirl stuff go where they could work together but his focus would be more on the human threats and concerns and hers would be on the worldwide threats and the alien threats and the the really big big bads and leave some of the day-to-day stuff to the police and Guardian. Anyway anything else you thought we should discuss this week before we move on? No I think that about it. I really loved our villain though this week. I thought he was great. Yeah yeah we didn't discuss him too much. The idea that he was like an everyman a good guy gone bad was very Smallville-ish like you had said and I enjoyed that as well. All right with that we're going to move into the Flash episode. A very big setup episode for where we're going to go in the final push towards the finale and that episode was entitled I Know Who You Are. My name is Barry Allen. I am the fastest man alive. 
Team Flash takes on Killer Frost after they find Tracy, the woman that Future Barry revealed would trap Savitar once and for all. Meanwhile, Joe's relationship with Cecile becomes more complicated when she says that she loves him. Well, there's no point in building up to the final scene of the episode with how huge it was. Instead, let's jump right in. Future Barry Allen, or Future Flash, is Savitar. In the closing moments of this week's episode, Barry figured out that it was his future self that is fated to kill Iris in the very near future. Michael, we had discussed this theory a while ago. Now that it has been revealed, do you feel like it was the only one that truly made sense? We knew going into this episode, and even discussing it last week, that Savitar would have to be someone that Caitlin would trust in order to bow down to him once she learned his identity. When Savitar revealed himself to her at the end of last week's episode, Killer Frost was immediately resigned to follow Savitar's wishes. So Michael, does this make sense that it's a future Barry Allen, and would Caitlin, even as her evil doppelganger, follow Barry so faithfully, or would it have made more sense if it were Ronnie like we had hypothesized last week? Yeah, in some ways I think it would make more sense to be Ronnie, but in others I think the evil Barry Allen works better, especially when you look at the overall this season. Um, Caitlin has always been extremely loyal to both Cisco and Barry, and that has never changed in the past three years, and Killer Frost is still technically Caitlin on some level, just an evil version, so it would make sense that Caitlin's instincts of trusting Barry and Cisco would continue on to Savitar because he's also a completely evil version of Barry, uh, albeit from the future. And, you know, when you put an evil Caitlyn with an evil Barry, of course they're going to team up. You know, that being said, if we look at last season, Killer Frost from Earth 2 worked together with both Deathstorm, the Earth 2 Ronnie, and Reverb, the Earth 2 Cisco, and was very loyal to them as she was to Zoom. So I don't really think it's much of a stretch at all. Yeah, and, and really her, her loyalty to Zoom last season was not really loyalty. It was out of fear. Yeah, it was more out of fear. She, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to Deathstorm and to Cisco, you're absolutely right. It did seem much more loyalty and love for Deathstorm. So yeah, uh, absolutely. In no small way, Barry has always been his own worst enemy and even more so this season. Indeed, it's actually incredibly fitting that Savitar turned out to be Barry Allen since Barry has been the season's big bad all along, even before we figured out that he was Savitar. And I don't just say that because Savitar has been creeping around all season and been part of this thing. I mean, Barry Allen of the present has been his own worst enemy. Thanks to creating and undoing Flashpoint, Barry set all those dominoes toppling for this season's havoc. This is all on him in a way that not being fast enough isn't. Michael, looking back at the themes of the season, does the reveal make even more sense now? Absolutely. I think both Arrow and the Flash are going with the ideas this season that Oliver and Barry are really their own worst enemies. You know, Arrow is doing this in a very practical, theoretical way uh, with the creation of Prometheus because of Oliver's actions, whereas as the Flash decided to deal with it quite literally, and I think that for this show it makes a lot more sense. You know, you mentioned that this was a theory we threw out there earlier this season, and in fact, last season I even thought that Zoom would turn out to be an evil Barry from Earths 2 or 3, but now it's actually happening, and I think that's a good thing because now Barry will finally be able to move on from both uh, the past, you know, his mistakes, and worrying about the future and what he will become and uh, what him and Iris will become, either as the future Flash like we saw last week or even as Savitar, and instead this way he'll focus on being a hero in the present and living in the present which I think is really what he's needed and what the past two seasons, I don't think season one, but I think seasons two and seasons three have been building towards. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That, that's exactly what I think as well. Obviously, with three episodes still left, knowing who Savitar will only be the beginning for Barry and Team Flash. They still need to know how to stop the speedster god before he takes away the love of Barry's life and effectively dismantles Team Flash with grief. The key will be trying to figure out what happens to Barry in the future to turn himself into into such a dark villain. In the past two seasons, the Wells, Thawne, and Zoom big bads, after all, did all their damage not because of their master plans, but because of what the reveal of their 
identities did to Team Flash. They undermined confidences, they created senses of betrayal, and gave Team Flash a sense of being little more than pawns to the big bad. In the end, it seemed they were actors in a scheme that ultimately afforded them no actual agency since everything they did went exactly as Thawne and Zoom had planned all along. Just what they planned was never super interesting or effective, apparently. This is where Future Flash as Savitar has the most potential for impact. Certainly, if the betrayal of Wells and Thawne and Zoom were bad, Future Barry will be infinitely worse for Team Flash, and the team falling apart like it did in last week's future makes a whole lot more sense now. Michael, what were your thoughts on this? Is this going to make sense? Yeah, you know, my hope with, with the final three episodes is that it doesn't cause the team to distrust President Barry, because if they start to do that, then the entire team will fall apart, and it will always be hard for them to trust him no matter what, because of what he might become one day. You know, I, I know they've already established that Savitar is a future version of Barry, one from a dark Back to the Future Part 2 type future, but I almost wonder if this would have more of an impact if he were the time arm of Barry that died while fighting Zoom last season, thus making it still our Barry, but it's out of spite for what happened to him, uh, returns for his revenge, you know? Maybe that's still something that they could tackle with Savitar, maybe even just tweaking it a little bit, thus separating him from our Barry, but either way, the impact on Team Flash is going to be rough, and it's going to be really hard for them to recover, especially if an evil future Barry tries to kill Iris. You know, that relationship in and of itself may be in danger, and I hope it's not, but it may be. Yeah, that that's an interesting thought, Michael, that this could have been the time remnant from defeating Zoom. I, I, don't, I don't actually think it works, because for Savitar to know everything Barry and Team Flash are going to do to combat him, he would have have to lived it himself, and thus Savitar would have to be a time remnant, or the actual future Flash of this later version of Flash. Because at the time that he split and became the time remnant to be, defeat Zoom, he wouldn't have known all the things that were going to happen right. to later, you know, later to, to go up against uh, Savitar. But I love the idea and theory behind it, and I don't think, it, you know, it's going to be that Zoom fight remnant, but possibly still a future time remnant, or even one of the ones that Barry creates to fight Savitar in this episode, or in this uh, finale, uh, you know, even more creating himself because he created that time remnant to defeat Savitar, which creates Savitar. It's kind of falling into that same trap, and, and that's a cool idea. Well, that is something that Savitar does say. He goes, I created myself. And, right. you know, a lot of people are saying, well, it's because, you know, in the future, Barry, you know, gets really depressed and his virus and turns on everybody and gets all evil and all that. And I don't necessarily think that's true. I think what you're saying is probably the most likely possibility where Barry actually does create time remnants of himself that the future Flash we met last week said Savitar would kill them all. Well, what if Savitar doesn't actually kill them all and he actually does create himself by saving one of them? You know, I, I think that's a really good idea and I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really cool idea. Now, Michael, when superheroes usually encounter evil versions of themselves in the comics, it's normally as a way of facing the darker or even darkest parts of themselves and emerging better and wiser after defeating themselves. Barry has been screwing up all season on his own without that evil version of himself to really do much of anything. This is why, ultimately, future Barry's reasons probably won't matter in the end as much as they might have otherwise. As Abracadabra noted, no one hurt Flash like Savitar did, and no one punishes himself more for not being better than he is is than Barry Allen does. So whether this works in the end for me really hinges on the next three episodes and how Barry changes both himself and the future and whether it all makes sense and resolves the season-long issues that Barry has been having with himself, the future, and the and the past. And that gets back to your thought a moment ago, Michael, about being able to move on from that and live in the here and now. On this series, Barry has always looked to the past or to the future to remedy his problems, but he's never looked at how 
how he could change in the present. Much like his trip to the future last week and the many effects of Flashpoint, I'm hoping that facing a literal future self will spur Barry to look at himself and the world in the here and now and figure that out when it comes to solving his problems and leave the time travel crutch behind. What do you think, Michael? Could facing a literal future version of himself focus Barry on living in the now and not trying to fix the errors of the past or control the future? Could this be how and why next season we see a non-speedster Big Bad as the villain? What are your thoughts on Barry facing off against a literal evil version of himself? Definitely, and I alluded to this a little earlier as you said, but I'll say it here again. The Flash Riders are realizing now that speedsters, especially ones that mess with time, will only work this show for so long, and since Legends of Tomorrow deals with time travel every single week, the Flash is going to have to cut that down, or out altogether. I hope not out out altogether, because I still think it's an important part of the series, but nevertheless, I think they're going to have to cut it down, hence why I think the Thinker is a great choice for a C4 villain if done right. You know, Barry facing Savitar, this literal evil version of his future, is going to do exactly what, as you said, it's going to cause Barry to change the future. You know, whatever you think about yourself is who inevitably you will become in one way or another, and if Barry focuses all his willpower on changing who he is now in the present, if he if he decides to change now instead of thinking he's going to change later, he won't become Savitar because he's seen that and it, he doesn't want to become it. And But if he allows himself to be overwhelmed with grief or fear, then it's inevitable. Barry traveling to the future last week and now seeing his future here in the present is enough for him to realize that he can already change history and that he already has changed history. He already has an advantage on both future versions of himself, the one we met last week and Savitar, because the future Flash last week didn't know who Savitar was at all. Present Barry does, and that's enough for him to already change what he will become. Exactly, Michael. And that is the thought that should give all of us Flash fans hope that they can still defeat Savitar and save Iris. But in saving Iris, is there an unforeseen consequence and something else happens? Someone else dies? That's the stuff that will make the finale and those final moments really great, because even if we think Barry can save Iris now, what will the cost be to do it? I guess we're going to find out in the next three episodes, because yeah. I, I think it's it's what they've done has has really set up these final three episodes to be really good because all along we've been like, oh, they're going to save Iris. They're going to figure it out. But now we realize, oh, but if they save Iris, does that change something else? Does that cause somebody else to die? Does that change the, the group completely because Caitlin is no longer there and then Julian blames Flash for saving Iris but not Caitlin or, you know, something like that. There's so much and so many different ways that this could go. It's going to really keep us interested for the next three episodes. I just hope it's not Joe. Yeah, me too. I would be really upset if it were Joe and maybe that's why Savitar hurting Barry like nobody else did is a thing. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. Anyway, on a separate note, I really enjoyed the visuals of Killer Frost and Flash's fight this week where she was gliding around on a wave of ice through Central City. I think that's so classic Flash comics and the Flash comics Killer Frost and I thought the visuals of it were just top notch. They got the look and feel of the comics just right and I love when they do that. Also with the Killer Frost story arc, I really enjoyed the Cisco and Julian stuff this week and how their feelings and friendships with Caitlin caused some friction between the two but ultimately was resolved in a satisfying way. Michael, what were your thoughts on the Killer Frost visuals and the story and focus on her character this week? Does future Barry being Savitar make sense why he saved Killer Frost in the end? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I thought Killer, the Killer Frost visuals were amazing this week and her story actually worked for me very well. Savitar saving her actually I think makes more sense now that we know he is Barry but even if we didn't, she's still his pawn and in that in and of itself it would make sense. You know, what didn't make sense to me is why Savitar didn't just kill Tracy right then and there, but oh well, I guess we'll figure that out. Yeah, I think they even brought that up in the episode, but maybe that would have been too easy, or maybe there was something that Savitar knows about interacting with the past, and if he did it, it might screw something
something up in the future he wants would not happen. So he needed Caitlin to do it uh, instead. Either way, I- I'm sure if it's important, the writers and showrunners will let us know in the coming episodes. Anyway, any additional comments and thoughts we should discuss this week? Did you like where things ended with Joe and Cecile? I did. I was glad they didn't end up killing her off because I almost thought they were going to for a minute, and that worked really well for me. On, on another note, though, I know Killer Frost is supposedly coming back next season. At least that's what I've heard. But I wonder if they're going to use the stone that Alchemy used earlier this season or something like that to split Frost and Caitlyn only for maybe Caitlyn to die and Tracy to take her place on Team Flash. Kind of like a Smallville Black Kryptonite sort of thing that they did with Davis Bloom and Doomsday at the end of Season 8. I think that would be a very easy way for the show to still incorporate Caitlyn and Danielle Panabaker into the show while moving on with this Tracy character who is suddenly so important. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great theory, Michael. I could see that working very, very well for next season. The actress who plays Tracy, Anne Dudek, has a part in Sci-Fi's The Magicians as well, so she'll have to make her schedules work if she's going to take over for Caitlin next season and be a regular. But she's a supporting character with limited scenes on that other series of The Magicians, so I, I still think it could really work. I will miss Caitlin's character, especially if she's dead and not somehow buried in Killer Frost's psyche, and I think that might steal some of the motivation of Cisco and Barry to try and save Killer Frost and Caitlin, but it could open up some other really interesting story arcs, so I'm not sure which way I really want it to go, but we all know how HR wants it to go, which was hilarious <laughs> watching him try to flirt. Tom Cavanaugh, will you ever stop amazing me? You are awesome. Oh yeah, he's, he's definitely the breakout actor of this series, that's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love him. I, I've, I've loved him in virtually every show I've ever seen him in, but this is, this is great. And I love that they brought in so many different versions of Wells because it, each one gives us something new. And this HR, while we initially were maybe struggling to find his place and everything, I think in the end, it, it's ended up being one of my favorites because it is just pure comedy every week. Yeah. All right, with that, I think it's about time for you to take over the discussion as we move into the Arrow episode, where we get a little bit of movement in a couple different story arcs, and we're going to have an interesting discussion about what we liked or didn't like about each of them. So let's talk about Arrow's episode, Underneath. Adrian turns the bunker into a death trap and traps Oliver and Felicity inside. While they try to get out, they discuss the issues between them. This week's arrow picked up right where last week's left off, with Oliver and Felicity trapped in the bunker with an EMP blast sent through it to disable their cries for help, as well as Felicity's spinal implant that allows her to walk. Nico, I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed this week's episode. With basically no Felicity drama all season, and the end of Felicity's tenure with Helix being last week's episode, I thought this episode handled the aftermath of both of those plotlines fairly well, even if they were not plotlines that we had enjoy it. Nico, what were your overall first thoughts and impressions on this week's episode? Did you like it? Did it help strengthen Team Arrow for the final three? What did you think? Overall, I did enjoy this episode, but the parts that focused on Oliver and Felicity, the fact that by all accounts, it looks like they're heading back to Oliver and Felicity getting back together, which we'll discuss in detail in a moment, and the whole Felicity and Oliver flirting and then hooking up in the Arrow cave retroactively in this week's episode activated my blind rage against her character and completely took me out of the episode. 
episode. I know I'm being irrational in my analysis, but I just hate what the whole Oliver and Felicity relationship did to the show. And every time it looks like they're reviving it, it pisses me off and ruins scenes, if not episodes, for me. So I really liked a lot of this episode, and I even enjoyed Oliver and Felicity in the present, working together probably the best they have in a long time, probably since they broke up. So that was great. But the retroactive hookup stuff and the relationship drama it sparked, not a fan of all of that. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. The Them hooking up in the flashbacks, which we'll talk about in a bit, but that was not my favorite thing either. I agree. I, I felt like it was almost, this whole episode was almost kind of the writers just, just giving the Elicity fans what they want for an episode before saying we're moving on. Yeah, I, at, least, at least that's the hope, <laughs> right? But that being said, let's begin with Oliver and Felicity. The entire argument Felicity gave this week was that Oliver doesn't trust her. Now, on a small scale, Oliver admitted this early on in the episode, but it wasn't until later that he corrected his statement in saying that it's not that he doesn't really trust Felicity. He does. It's that he does, in fact, trust himself. We know this because of what we found out about, or what he found out about himself when tortured and kidnapped by Prometheus a couple episodes ago. And when he admits that to Felicity, she kind of does a 180 on Ollie, explaining to him that he really is a hero and that the dark past that he has, his enjoyment of killing is only a result of his five years in hell that we've been watching the flashbacks these five seasons. That in these past ten years, he's dealt with a lot. And if that's the only thing that's happened to him because of it while still remaining a hero, then it's, I guess, not really a big deal. I don't, I don't know exactly what she was trying to get at there, but Nico, I would normally be on Felicity's case here immediately, calling her a hypocrite for basically doing the same BS that we've gone through with Sarah on Legends this year, with everybody saying that she's this great leader when all of her actions show the exact opposite. But I don't actually have to do that because Felicity is that force at the end of the episode, and she finally understands why Oliver doesn't want her to become like him, because being with Helix gives her a taste of that, and she, at least for now, doesn't like it at all. Nico, what were your thoughts on the Oliver and Felicity argument this week? Yeah, I felt a bit drama between the two of them this week, and especially when intercut with those flashbacks that we talked about, and I don't think either of us like that. But were you satisfied with the resolution, and how do you think that this will strengthen their partnership in the future? Okay, so as usual, when it comes to Felicity, I got all hot and bothered and jumped the gun on my argument and already told you a lot of that stuff but <laughs> that I didn't like about her and Oliver this episode. But I will reiterate that I really did enjoy the present story arc with Oliver and Felicity this week. The whole journey to understanding between them will be helpful in moving this story forward, but it also looks like it means they might be getting back together, which hurts my theory on the whole Black Siren idea for next season. We'll get into some of that in a moment. So definitely not a huge fan of that progression. I like that by the end of the episode, Felicity came to understand that Oliver needed to keep things from her and others as well because he was ashamed of his secret and it did not have anything to do with not trusting her or not loving her. It was personal. Her whole thing in the flashback this week about not being able to be with him if he's not completely honest with her is a complete immature attitude. Honesty, trust, and intimacies are bedrock principles that healthy and successful relationships are built on, but complete honesty is impossible and frankly is not what people really want. Everyone has their private thoughts and expecting someone else to share those with you is fallacy. We are all entitled to our own thoughts and personal secrets, especially when they have nothing to do with your partner. And I think Felicity actually understood this by realizing everything she went through, her reasons and beliefs that led her to betray the team and join Helix were just the sort of secrets and thoughts that Oliver was keeping from her. Sure, the keeping William from her was a big one, and I think probably crossed the line to an extent, except that it wasn't really his secret to tell since it was a condition of his being in his son's life. But now I think Felicity understands and will accept that Oliver trusts her, and if he keeps something from her, it is not because of her or a lack of trust, but because it, it either is not hers to share in, not for her to know, or it is one of those private 
private things that each of us are entitled to keep to ourselves and not be considered lying to our friends, partners, or spouses. Me not telling you your genes make you look like a yokel is not lying to you. It's just good manners. And I think t expecting total honesty gets into those white lies and then personal like thoughts. And you don't want your spouse to be your thought police. You want to be able to trust that you'll tell them the important stuff. You'll tell them the things that affect them. But you can th keep some of that stuff to yourself. Absolutely. And I, and I think on some level, too, it's not about lying to them when you're trying to. It's it's not about, you know, them asking you something and you lying to them. That's I don't think right. I don't think that's ever what Oliver was trying to do. It's more of I can't tell you this, especially in regards to William, because I honestly just can't. It's not like you said, it's not it was not his secret secret tell. It was a pre-existing condition in order to be a part of his son's life. And I think I don't think Felicity has ever really understood that. And I don't even know if she's ever really had it explained to her, to be honest. But I, I really did like that scene at the end of the episode where she basically admitted to being a hypocrite and all of those frustrations that I have at least had with her for the past year or two really kind of got resolved to a point. You know, I think she's starting to understand that, yes, people do have these private thoughts. People do have these secrets that they keep, as you were saying, Nico. And I think that that's an important part for her character development. And hopefully going forward, she'll maybe even be a little more trusting of Oliver. Because I think the real issue is, is she's mad because he doesn't seem to trust her. But it's not really about that. She's more mad because she doesn't trust him. But going off of that, between the way the flashbacks were set up this week, as well as Felicity's speech to Oliver about who he really is, do you think there's a possibility of seeing them get back together? I know we kind of already mentioned that, but and neither of us want that, but I think the show has obviously been much stronger since they split up, but the episode seemed to kind of be pointing to the hope for some and irritation for others that maybe it'll live on again. Do you see this happening at the end of this season or maybe even next season? Yeah, you know, I, I, maybe I should read all the way through your script, Michael, because, yeah, <laughs> I, I do think this is where things are going. I, I don't want to see that, and if it happens, then once again, the writers are going away from Laurel, this time our Black Siren theory, and I, I don't like it. I don't want to see it. I thought that that really made a lot of sense. That was where she, they were supposed to end up. He was supposed to end up with Laurel. Whether it ends up being Earth's to Black Siren, re, who has been turned from evil and becomes the Black Canary that we all know Laurel can be, that would be really awesome. Mm. But I thought originally it was going to be just the regular Laurel, but they killed her off. So, yeah, I, I don't want to see them go away from her again for Felicity, because I don't like that, and I don't think it has worked very well. I agree. Do you know if Katie Cassidy is getting second billing next season, or if Emily Bat Records is still getting it? My guess is it'll be Emily. Okay, that's unfortunate. But, yeah, I have not heard. I just know that Katie is coming back as a series regular. Okay. Well, that's, that is a step in the right direction one way or another, so hope, yes. hopefully the writers are listening to all the thoughts that we've been having towards towards <laughs> them these past few years, or Arrow fans in general's thoughts. Yep. Now, along the same lines of all this, Diggle and Lila's argument from last week about her use of Argus resources and becoming the new Amanda Waller has bled into this week's episode as well, and along similar lines, I was not a big fan of this drama at all. You know, I didn't like it last week, and I certainly didn't like it here. Diggle, of course, is right for calling out Lila for what she's been doing with Argus, especially after finding out that she stole a T-Sphere this week. That's a whole new level of breach of trust. But Lila isn't wrong in saying that Dig doesn't trust her like he does Oliver, and that the same level of support is there, because that is very much a true argument as well. Nico, did you find yourself drawn to one particular side of this argument, or did the whole thing just take you out of the conflict entirely? To be honest, I could see both sides of the argument, but luckily, at least in my mind, it was resolved by the end of the episode, and I think that they both took what the other was saying saw it from the other point of view and found a middle ground where they could both be content with the argument being resolved. 
Lila is going to be more open with Diggle about what Argus is doing, and maybe that will cause some arguments in the moment, but Diggle won't feel like she is keeping things from him and doing all these shady things behind his back. And Diggle acknowledged that he was not trusting his wife and her decisions as much as he trusted Oliver, or as she trusted Diggle, and he would work on that. It doesn't mean that they are magically going to agree on everything or how Argus does things, but at least they are not keeping things from each other and are working to fix their problems and keep everything open and out there so that it's not a hidden secret or a lie of omission. So now I think Lila is going to keep Diggle in the loop and explain why they've done something. She's not going to not do something because Diggle wouldn't approve, but she's not going to keep it from him either. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I I hope that we see that progress within the final episodes of the season as well as maybe even next season with Diggle starting to actually physically show that he's trusting her. But I agree. I think on some level is also very much resolved this week and I really don't want to touch it again at the same time. Yeah. Now at the end of this week's episode we see that Adrian Chase finally found William, Oliver's son, and makes a sly comment about how Oliver knew his father just as Chase now knows William. Nico, this honestly makes me nervous because in the comics, Prometheus, albeit a different version of the character, but with the same name, killed Roy Harper's daughter, Leon, who is also Oliver's granddaughter, causing Oliver to lose it and kill Prometheus, which had disastrous effects on his life, outing him as Green Arrow and him becoming a fugitive for murder, going back to that fall of the Green Arrow story I've been referencing all season. Now, Oliver has killed many people on the series and many villains well, so that isn't as big a deal necessarily, but could it be that this is what outs Oliver as the Green Arrow? Could Chase hold William hostage until he outs his identity as Oliver Queen and the Green Arrow, that they're one and the same, just as Oliver outed Chase as Prometheus a few episodes back? Is it possible that Chase will decide to kill William as he did Evelyn or to hurt Ollie even more? Could he kill William's mother maybe? Nico, what do you think is going to happen next? Yeah, Michael, we talked a bit earlier in the season that we thought that Oliver might either out himself or be outed by Prometheus this season and have to live with people knowing that he was the Green Arrow and all that that would entail, possibly being charged with all the murders that the Hood and Green Arrow has committed. If they go the Prometheus killing William and Oliver murdering Prometheus way, I'm not sure that they can resolve all of that in the sixth season, so I think they better have a plan to go beyond that, which if I'm not mistaken, you had said you hope is the last season. Oliver murdering Prometheus and having to go on the run would be the sort of cliffhanger that shows love to do over the summer and between season hiatuses. So it absolutely makes sense that that could be where the story is going. But if they are going to go that route, I think killing William is the only option. Killing William's mother, while tragic, would probably not affect Oliver enough to cause him to murder Chase or Prometheus. But killing William, that would be enough, I think. I'm I'm not sure the series should go this route, but it makes the most sense to me with what we know this far and from the comics. So yeah, I think that's where it's going. Yeah, absolutely. Lastly, I want to briefly mention the flashbacks this week. With the normal flashbacks coming to an end with this season's finale of Leon Yu, we've talked about Arrow implementing a different flashback formula to the series, maybe even spotlighting on a specific character each week, going back to previous seasons as uh, this week's episode did, etc. But I wonder if this would actually work. I think what makes the normal flashbacks to Oliver's time on the island in Russia and Japan work is that there's an end goal in mind with them. You know, ultimately, Oliver's flashbacks will line up with the beginning of season one where Oliver is rescued from Leon Yu, but if they decide to go a different route with the flashbacks next season, what is going to prevent them from falling into the filler trap that happens when they put flashbacks in for the sake of having them as opposed to a five-year story? Nico, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, some other th- series use flashbacks very su- successfully, so I'm not entirely sure that it wouldn't work the same for Arrow starting next week, but the fear that I have is that they will never live up to the amazing nature of the way they did the flashbacks on the first four and a half seasons of the series. On 
other series, and this episode was an example of that, flashbacks can be erroneously used as filler to introduce us to information or fill in the holes to work with some new concept the writer of that episode needs you to know about the characters. On this week's episode, that information was that Felicity and Oliver hooked up and discussed the fact that the real reason they broke up was not the William issue so much as a general lack of trust, and they then could resolve that in this episode, and it wasn't like they were bringing it all up in this episode. That This was a second or third time they've discussed this when actually it was all done in this episode, just jumping back to it flashbacks. Oftentimes this feels like, oh, here's a crucial piece of information that is vital to my character, my backstory, or my origin, and I never talked about it before, never thought about it before, but is essential to this week's plot, and then I'll never discuss it again. That is the bad way of doing flashbacks. That is the way that you see on lesser shows. You see this on shows that have been on for way too long or are just hacky writers. I don't want that to be the case for this series as it enters beyond the initial five-year plan with next season. And I'm a little bit scared that some of the quality that we expect from these flashbacks, one of my favorite aspects of this series, is going to be massively lower or lost by doing it this way. I completely agree with that. Do you think that Oliver will still be the primary focus of these flashbacks? Or do you have any idea of how you think that it will actually work every week? I, th- I think the issue for me is that, you know, if they don't have that continuous story, as I said, they don't have that end goal in mind that they're just not going to work. Yeah, I-, I think that it'll be hit or miss if they don't have that. Like, sometimes it'll work, sometimes it won't. Like, we saw the Renee flashbacks, and that really worked for me. And I thought that was good. It was a little bit of, hey, here's a little bit of backstory that you need to know about me. But it built into a bigger story. It built into getting his daughter back. That became a major theme of the rest of his story for the season. It wasn't just a one and done in the episode. So I think if they do it like that, where it's setting up things for the future and giving a little context to it, that can be where it's good and and can be done properly. I, I think it's all about the skill of the individual writers for each episode or the showrunner for making sure that they all fit into a larger arc and not just an arc within that episode. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Nico, do you have any final thoughts on this week's Arrow? Nah, I think I've rambled on enough for this week. <laughs> all good. Well, I think with that being said, we'll move on to the uh, closing of this week's episode. Yeah, on next week's episode, we'll be back with more new episodes of Gotham, Supergirl, Flash, and Arrow, so make sure to join us for that next week. But for now and most of the season, we're going to roll Dan's pre-recorded closing. Get at our Across the Airways podcast. Get at our website. Acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows. Available as their own. Get individual programs. Get the iTunes store. Get Google Play store. Guys, for the podcast shows, get our network. We have the DC Nation podcast. Located at dcnation.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's dcnation.acrosstheairways.com. Which reviews popular DC Comics related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast. Located at marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairways.com. Which reviews Marvel Comics related TV shows and movies. And we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheairways.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airways podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairways.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory and The Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, and the Marvelverse podcast, on the mixed radio station, code by Jack Stifles, Stitcher Radio, or if you 
use Apple devices, download the Podcast Box app. Again, if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace. Again, the Windows Marketplace. Again, a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Guys, for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter, got across their waves. There's no thought in there. It's just across their waves. Join our circle, got Google Plus, or leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Again, that's 773-809-3363. Call us when sending us an email. Please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Give the subject line. Give you our sending us listener feedback you want us to read. God, the air. God, would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con. God, it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Okay, so once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki, Amy, Wu Kim, Joshua Mercury, James Heffels, and Steve Nostro, I'm Nico Reifstek. And I'm Michael J. Petty. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys next week, and I hope you enjoyed another week of DC television. See ya. Jeffster lives, man. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.